Hi guys. Welcome. Here we are again. Like we do every episode. We're gonna honor start in baseball. So the dynamic left-handed pitcher, uh, Andy Pettit, he'd make his debut with the Yankees and have some very productive years there, <laughs> winning four World Series with the Yankees before moving to the Houston Astros. He played, uh, he played three more seasons with the Astros for going back to the Yankees and winning one more World Series during his second time round. He'd made three All-Star games all while a Yankee, including his 96 season, which he led the AL in wins. He was also the ALCS MVP in 2001. However, the Yankees would lose to that year's World Series champs, the Diamondbacks. But, uh, oops, I kind of went a little far there. <laughs> Pettit was a solid pitcher, though, during his career and holds the MLB records for most postseason wins with 19. His 46 is retired by the Yankees, and he's honored in the Monument Park. However, however, there are some potential asterisks involving Pettit. He was involved in that infamous Mitchell report. In the report, it said Pettit used... HGH and PEDs. He initially denied the allegations, but in 2008, as part of a hearing before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Oversight and Governmental Reform, Pettit admitted to additional injections of HGH twice in one day in 2004. He also recalled being told by former teammate Roger Clemens that he received injections of HGH. That's where Clemens' famous Pettit misremembered quote came from. It's a yeah, it's been said that that scandal's really put a strain on their relationship. Clemens and Pettit were pretty good friends, but as of now, Pettit has still not got enough votes to make it in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and we'll find out if he ever will. Like I said, that asterisk with that HGH time, we'll see. We'll see. It's a weird era in baseball, for sure. But uh, the next player I'll mention also happens to be a retired pitcher, Mike Flanagan. He'd make his debut with the Baltimore Orioles, where he'd spend most of his career. After a few seasons, he'd be a regular starting pitcher. pitcher. In 78, he'd make his only All-Star game. Following season was probably his... Or he'd make his... Yeah, his only All-Star game. But then the following season was probably his best. He'd lead the MLB in wins, win the AL Cy Young. And he'd be a consistent pitcher, but he would never repeat the numbers of that one season there. He was a member of the 83 World Series winning Orioles too. And although that 79 was probably his best statistic season... Uh, he considers the World Championship of 83 his best year in baseball. The last, the following season was probably his last productive one, and while playing in a charity basketball game, he'd tear his left Achilles tendon, and that, that changed his career significantly. He'd get moved to the Jays, where he showed flashes of what he once was, before returning to the Orioles to finish his career. After retirement, he'd uh, serve as a few different positions with the franchise, being pitching coach, then moving up to executive vice president, and uh, he'd always he'd also work as one of the broadcasters. Unfortunately, a sad ending for his career, though. Uh, for him, sorry, uh, his wife did not hear from her husband. Phoned a neighbor to help. The neighbor went home, went to the home, called nine one one after failing to find him. Then they discovered a body on the property, but could not identify whether it was him because the wounds were so severe. The body was later discovered as Flanagan, with the cause of death determined to be a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the head. Just so terrible. It was said he was distressed about financial issues, dealt with depression, and suffered from an alcohol problem. But like I said, a sad ending to a good career and a good guy. He was 
inducted to the Orioles Hall of Fame and is 46, has been out of circulation since 2012, so you wonder if they'll retire that. They're not letting anyone wear it, so they might as well honor it. Um, next baseballer up is Canadian pitcher, Gibson's BC fine, Gibson's BC's finest, Ryan Dempster. Uh, yeah, he's 46 now. His name even lines up with his jersey mention. He started with the Marlins. After a few tough seasons, he'd make the 2000 All-Star game. He'd get moved to the Reds, where he'd have to have Tommy John surgery during his time and lose a full season. He'd get released by the Reds, but he'd get picked up by the Cubs, and he'd move to the reliever role, where he did pretty good. You know, he'd... But the Cubs were like, you know what? Let's move you back to the starting rotation. And as a starter there, he'd make his second and final All-Star game. Traded to the Rangers, where he did pretty well in his time there before signing with the Red Sox, and he was a member of that 2013 World Series winning team that beat the Cardinals. He had a pretty steady career, and he was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame in 2019. We'll go to another retired pitcher. This one goes a little further in time. Jim Maloney, mostly known for his time as the, with the Cincinnati Reds. He uh, would play his last season with the Angels, but like I said, he was known as the Reds. He was a beast there. He'd make one All-Star game only, though, in 65 and threw two no-hitters in his career. But injuries, you know, injuries struck him, and he wasn't the same player. A ruptured Achilles took away a longer career, you know. He is still in the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, but a career that could have been better except for injuries. You hear that a lot. We'll go from retired pitchers to current one. Next 46 up is another reliever, Craig Kimbrell, drafted in the 33rd round of the 07 draft by the Braves, but he stayed at Wallace State to improve his position, and it worked out because the Braves took him third with the 96 selection the following year, and when he was called up, he did fantastic as a closer, winning NL Rookie of the Year. With the Braves, he was a four-time NL saves leader, also NL Rollades Relief Man Award, Delivery Man of the Year, and a Reliever of the Year Award. He'd get traded to the Padres, where he'd spend a season before going to the Red Sox. And with the Red Sox, he'd win another Reliever of the Year in his only World Series ring in 2018 when they beat the Dodgers. He'd go to the Cubs, the White Sox, Dodgers, and he played with the Phillies last season. And in early December 2023, signed a one-year deal to join the Baltimore Orioles. So that's a big signing for that young team who could use a guy like Kimbrell in their lineup. He's made nine All-Star games, and it doesn't look like he's slowing down anytime soon. He was part of a combined no-hitter in 2021 while with the Cubs. And he's in that elite membership of the 300 Saves Club. Actually, he's more even in an even more elusive group. He's one of eight players in history to have over 400 saves. Uh, he sits eighth all time and is only three saves behind fellow active player Kenley Jansen. So I imagine he'll move up that list with the Orioles. And he's only 20 saves behind fourth place Francisco Rodriguez. So we'll see if he can move up the, up the career rankings there. And then uh, we'll finish the baseball portion with another active player, Washington Nationals left-hander Patrick Corbin. A great high school pitcher, but didn't have the grades to go to a four-year college that they allowed him to play college basketball or baseball. So as a result, he'd enroll at Mohawk Valley Community College in Unica, New York, and his play ended up getting him drafted in the second round by the Angels. He'd never get the call-up for the Angels, but get moved to the Diamondbacks, and while he was there, he'd make two All-Star games. And after his last All-Star game there, he'd sign a huge deal to join the Nationals. He stuck with his 46 with his new team, but wore number 45 for one start after former teammate and friend Tyler Skaggs died from an overdose. Uh, he continued wearing that 45, but he'd go back to 46. And uh, he was the winning pitcher in Game 7 of the 2019 World Series, the first and only championship for the Washington Nationals. 
And although he's had success in the MLB, the last few years has been a little tough on him. He hasn't looked like the pitcher he once was. So hopefully he can have a bounce-back season. We'll leave the the diamond for the gridiron. We'll start the NFL portion with a person people might know more for his coaching than his playing. But I'm talking Herm Edwards. He played cornerback and was great at the college level. Bouncing around a bit from Cal to put Monterey, Monterey Peninsula College and then San Diego State. I guess his work off the field is on the West Coast has really been praised. He's helped promote Monterey County Special Olympics for several years. He'd go undrafted into the NFL and get his start with the Eagles, where he'd spend most of his career, never missing a game during his time in Philly, and his 33 interceptions have him one short of the record shared by three players, Brian Dawkins, Eric Allen, and Bill Bradley. But the highlight of Edwards' career probably came during the 78 season, the final seconds of the game. The Giants were up five. Instead of kneeling the ball to run out the clock, uh, Joe Pisaric attempted to hand it off to Larry Zonka, you might remember from episode 39's mention, and the ball would come loose, Edwards would pick it up, run it all the way for the touchdown, giving the Eagles the win and forever cementing in history known as the miracle at the Meadowlands. This fiasco has really led to the victory formation you see today. Very low risk, and you're not going to fumble that usually. Edwards would play his last season with the Falcons and Rams for a culminated career. He'd go right in the coaching, becoming a defensive assistant at San Jose State. He was there a few years before becoming a scout and defensive backs coach with the Chiefs under legend Marty Schottenheimer. He'd then go to Tampa Bay, where he'd work under Tony Dungy. Then in 2001, he'd get his chance at head coaching when he was named the coach of the Jets, and he'd have some playoff success there. But uh, it was he was then part of a rare coaching trade where he was sent to the Chiefs. He'd get them to the playoffs, but he wouldn't have as much success with the Jets, and he'd get canned. He'd work at ESPN before going to Arizona State, where he spent four-plus seasons before getting fired. And he's known for one of the most passionate speakers out there. His hermisms are super popular around. He's a religious dude that does not swear, but... Yeah, he responded with his most memorable quote about uh, if anybody asked if he was tanking for a draft pick, he's like, this is what's great about sports. You play to win the game. Hello, you play to win the game. You don't play it just to play it. Iconic phrase. It's always up there in those sound bites. So, yeah, more known for his coaching than playing, but he was a really good player. Next 46 from the NFL, Todd Christensen. He was a beast in college, four-year starter at Brigham Young University. He played fullback and was the first team all-whack during his senior season. Three straight seasons and leading and receiving from the fullback spot. That's crazy. That led him to getting drafted by the Cowboys in the second round in the 78 draft. He was leading the Cowboys in rushing their final exhibition game, but broke his foot and would have to miss the entire season. They wanted to move him to tight end, but he refused, and then uh, he was waived at the end of training camp. The Giants picked him up, or he'd play one game before getting released. After going unclaimed, the Raiders would pick him up, and he'd start lighting it up on the special teams role, especially as a long snapper. And Then he said, you know what, fuck it, everybody wants me to play tight end, I'll play tight end. It took a few years, but then once he started contributing, he was the man. <laughs> yeah, he only had one catch on their Super Bowl 15 run, but uh, in 82, he'd break out and show what he could do, leading the leagues in reception twice as a tight end. The only tight ends to lead the league in receptions for a season are Christensen and legend Kellen Winslow, so that's pretty wild. He'd make five Pro Bowls, three first-team All-Pros, two 
second team all pros. He had his second Super Bowl ring in Super Bowl 18. After retirement, he'd do color commentary, but he passed away at 57 for complications from liver transplant surgery. He battled liver disease and related illnesses for about two years. His son said the issue started after a botched gallbladder surgery 25 years earlier. But he was one of the great tight ends who would make an absolute killing in today's league, and it's unfortunate he was gone so soon. We'll finish the NFL portion with uh, Danny Abramowitz. He played at Xavier University, a school that no longer even has a football team. He'd put up good numbers. His six foot one ninety frame didn't attract a lot of attention, but he'd get drafted by the Saints in the seventeenth round. Yeah, they had a lot of rounds back then, but uh, uh, he had some productive years with the Saints. Best year coming in sixty nine when he led the league in receptions and got his only first team All Pro nod. Finish off his career playing two seasons in San Fran. Solid career. He was inducted into the Saints Hall of Fame, inducted into the Louisiana Hall of Fame, as well as his, as well as his alma mater, Xavier University. And he was also inducted into the National Polish American Sports Hall of Fame. So, very interesting life for Abramovitz there. And we'll go from the gridiron to the basketball court. There's only one player rocking the 46 right now. He's worn it his whole career. Memphis Grizzly, uh, John Conchar, four-year college player, playing at Purdue-Fort Wayne, four-time first-team All-Summit League. Spent his whole career, like I said, with the Grizzlies, mostly used as a ba- as a bench player. And he recorded his first and only triple-double near the end of 22 season. The only other mention was Aaron Baines, who used to rock it with the Spurs in the NBA and had that nasty injury while in the 2020 Summer Olympics where he slipped in the locker room, got a spinal injury that almost had him not walking. He's back playing basketball in the NBL with the Brisbane Bullets, so it's good to have him back on the floor even. The basketball court to the hockey rink, uh, number 46 come to mind, David Krejci, drafted in the third round by the Boston Bruins. He spent his entire career with the, the team. He was a member of the 2011 Stanley Cup winning team that beat the Canucks and triggered that riot. He led the team in scoring on that Stanley Cup run, and he also led the point, league in points in the 2013 Cup run, despite losing to the Blackhawks in the final. The Czech-born player is representing his country internationally. He's got plenty of bronze medals in there, two from the World Championship, one's World Junior. I don't know if he'll be in the Hall of Fame, but I'm thinking with his time spent in Boston, they might retire his number. Last mention of these jerseys comes from hockey as well. Number 46, Jared Spurgeon, Edmonton, Alberta, born Spurgeon, drafted by the Islanders. And although he never signed with the team, he played his minor league with the Spokane Chiefs in the WHL. Member of that team that won the Memorial Cup. He'd end up signing with the Minnesota Wild where he'd make his debut, and he's been a regular fixture ever since. 2021, he was named captain of the Wild, a position he still holds today. This past week, though, unfortunately, it was announced he'll miss the remainder of the season. He's undergoing hip and back surgeries, and yeah, he'll be out for the rest of the year. Tough blow for the Wild, who haven't had the best of seasons so far. But that was pretty good jersey wrap-up. 46, I was nothing really came to mind right away when I thought of it, but we'll see. That's why I love those things, man. But we'll jump right into the week of sports. The time machine all the way back to the last two games, a wildcard weekend to set up the divisional round. Because those games, uh, yeah, we're on after the podcast aired. It was uh, the Steelers and Bills. That game had been moved from the weekend due to the snow. 
Bills got on an early start. Steelers tried to come back, but never really threatened them. The Bills took that win. And then in the other game, you had the Eagles and Bucks, and the Eagles just fell flat on their face. They looked so good at the beginning of the year, and they just fell apart leading into the playoffs, and they fell apart in this game. The Buccaneers beat them, obliterating them, ending any Super Bowl hopes they had. We'll see what the Eagles do next season. Like I think they'll keep Coach Sirianni. I don't think you get rid of him after that. You just fix whatever collapse, whatever caused the collapse, I guess. But those games set up the divisional round, and that's what went on this past weekend. The first game was Texans and Ravens. Texans were still riding high after their playoff went over the Browns, but the Ravens, they're a number one team for a reason, you know, and they... This was close to start, you know, teams exchange of field goals, and Lamar Jackson would find Nelson Aguilar for a touchdown to go ahead. The Texans, their offense wasn't really going, but special teams would step up. Steven Sims would take a punt, 67 yards to the end zone to tie it up. We had a tie game going into halftime. Second half, though, Lamar's like, hey, this is why I should be MVP. <laughs> he'd run one in from 15 yards for a touchdown, and he'd throw one up in the Isaiah Likely, who mossed him, as they pointed out. It's it's like when you dunk on someone in the NBA, but in, when you catch it and you catch over someone, you know, you mossed them. But anyway, that's how Likely would score that touchdown. And then the ice game, Lamar would run in his second of the game. Great team win for the Ravens, who never really look threatened, and uh, they move on to the AFC Championship game. And since they're the number one team, they'll be hosting that. Um, Packers and 49ers. Oh, I think you already know the results, obviously, but uh, if you don't, we'll, we'll get there. I was really excited for this one, but nervous at the same time, knowing our recent playoff record against San Fran. And the way it started, it looked great. We were moving the ball really well, but we got stopped. Anders, Anders, Collars, Anders Carlson... We'll bring that name up again. He uh, hit a field goal to put us ahead. 49ers opening drive. Uh, Darnell Savage, he dropped what would have been a pick six and changed the game. It wouldn't. He wouldn't, and they'd have to punt. But the Packers would get the ball and again move the ball down the field. But again, we'd get stopped. And uh, instead of going to Carlson for a field goal, they're like, let's go for it, fourth and one. And they'd get stopped instead of taking the points. Ugh. It's a tough go in that call, and it didn't work out for the Packers there, and that seemed to inspire the 49ers. Purdy would go down the field, finding George Kittle on a beautiful touchdown pass. And that was huge for San Fran, because uh, Debo Samuel would leave the game with a shoulder injury, and their offense was struggling. Carlson would hit another field goal for the Packers, and it looked like the 49ers would answer with one of their own before half, but the field goal was blocked, so... Excuse me, despite the Packers dominating in yards and possession, they were down 7-6 at the break. But then in the second half, a nice defensive pass interference would set the Packers up, and Jordan Love would find Bo Melton for a 19-yard touchdown pass. But wouldn't last long. The 49ers would answer right away when Christian McCaffrey would bust a 39-yard touchdown run and some really bad tackling by the Pack. And the Packers would answer again, but it didn't come without drama. They had a huge kickoff return by Nixon, but he fumbled it. And it looked like it was going to get recovered by uh, the 49ers. But then linebacker Eric Wilson of the Packers dove like a golden retriever and got it. It was huge. Because Love would find Tucker Craft for a touchdown on that drive. And a two-point conversion, Packers were up seven. Jake Moody would hit a field goal for the 49ers, make it a four-point game. But then the Packers, you know, try to kill some time off, try to get another score. They'd set up for a field goal. They wouldn't get a touchdown. But this time, much like he's done a lot this season, Anders Carlson would miss the field goal. Again, this inspired the Niners. He moved the, moved the ball down the field with ease and capped it off with another McCaffrey touchdown run, this time putting the Niners ahead by three because of that missed field goal. 
So this was Love's time to come back and win or tie the game. He'd get off to a rough go, though, and when he'd make a throw running to his right, throwing into the middle, a big no-no. It was intercepted by Greenlaw. That was the second interception of the day. That reminded me of the old gunslinging Brett Favre throw, a throw where you're like, no, and then... Yeah, it was picked, you know, and they ran the ball out, and that was it. The 49ers won the game. We knew Anders Carlson. I don't want to keep bringing him up because, you know, we had that dropped interception, that fourth down we didn't get. But this Anders Carlson, like, we knew he missed kicks. No kick in the NFL's missed more than him this season. He's missed at least one kick in the last five, final five games, and 10 of his last 12 games. That's insane. I know he's a rookie and they want to see it out, but that's kind of ridiculous. Riley Patterson was missing some kicks for the Lions right away. Boom, got rid of him, brought in veteran Michael Padgley. But man, I just, I yeah, it's a tough loss. You know, you're optimistic about next season. Love was playing really well to end the season, but... To go out like that, to real Buzz Killington. I didn't know what jersey to wear, so I I stuck with my Spurs when Vinyama. At least, you know, they're still playing. <laughs> they're not winning games either, but at least we're still around. But hey, congrats to the 49ers, you know, advancing the NFC Championship game. Fourth in five years. Brock Purdy had a pretty bad game, but when they needed him, he stepped up. So what more can you ask out of the guy? A big thing will be, will Debo Samuel play in the next game? He's such a game changer. That'll be the big news going into the next game. And then you had Tampa Bay, Detroit. This Detroit crowd was rocking. They'd start the game out, little flat going three and out, and Tampa Bay looked to be moving the ball pretty well. And they'd throw Maker would throw it right in the Evans' hands, but he wouldn't catch it. We get tipped in the air. CJ Gardner Johnson made the easy interception. And there was some trash talking going between them both. Gardner Johnson said the Buccaneers got a good team. If they just had a good quarterback, they'd be good. And then Baker came out and said, yeah, he mentioned a guy that hasn't played all year. I don't even know if he watches tape. So it was pretty cool to see Johnson get the interception. And then after the sideline, he threw the ball back at Baker. So, yeah, you got to love that shit. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, Tampa would – they after the interception, Detroit would look to score, but they'd be held to a field goal. Could have been even better for Tampa. Dean had an easy interception, but he dropped it. So, yeah, the Lions would get the field goal. Tampa Bay would answer with one of their own. But then Jared Goff would cap off a long drive by finding Josh Reynolds in the end zone, giving the Lions a 10-3 lead. And Tampa Bay was looking to answer, and Chase McLaughlin would doink one off the uprights. They'd get another chance before halftime. This time Mayfield would hit Mike Evans on a few huge plays, setting up a Mayfield to Kate Auten touchdown. So we had a tie game going in the half. Late in the third, the Lions would go ahead again. Craig Reynolds would run one in from the one yard. Bucks immediately answer when Mayfield would hit Rashad White out of the backfield for the touchdown to tie the game going into the fourth. But just minutes later, Lions rookie Jameer Gibbs bust a 31-yard touchdown run. Lions would get the ball back. Goff would hit him on Ross St. Brown for the touchdown. Crowd was feeling it, sensing a win, but don't count out Tampa yet. Just within minutes, Baker would go down the field and find Mike Evans in the end zone. The old analytics crew said don't kick the extra point, go for two. They didn't get it, so they're still down eight with four and a half to go. They'd kick it to the Lions, and the defense would stand tall, forcing him to pump. And then you, Baker Mayfield would have a chance to tie it with a touchdown and two-point conversion. But it was short-lived. Second play of the drive, some for- pressure forced Baker into a bad throw, picked off by Barnes. Lions would end the game. Huge win in front of this win 
hungry crowd. 31-23, the Lions, the Detroit Lions, going to the NFC Championship game. First time since 91. I was four years old. <laughs> the Lions are now one of the... Yeah, the Lions are now one way, one win away from making it to the Super Bowl for the first time in franchise history. There are four teams who have never played in the, the Super Bowl. The Browns, Jaguars, Texans, and of course Lions. So they're trying to make that list three. Tough loss for Baker, though. He had a great bounce-back season. And there's talks that there's mutual consideration of bringing him back to the team. We'll see, though. And then we'll go to the last one of the weekend, the Bills and Chiefs here. Bill's opening drive, a wild Josh Allen run, was extended when he threw a lateral across the field. It probably could have been overturned, but they, they didn't challenge it early in the game. And Yeah, the Chiefs D would hold up, make the Bills kick a field goal. Chiefs would get a field goal of their own. And then the next, the first touchdown would come on the next drive when Josh Allen would run one in like a beast. Chiefs would answer with a field goal, then their D would get the ball back. And uh, a nice Edwards-Hilaire run set up Patrick Mahomes finding a wide-open Travis Kelsey, who made a nice heart to the crowd, either to Taylor Swift or his brother, Jason Kelsey, who popped out of the owner's box looking like art that should be hung in the Louvre. And the Bills would move down the field using a lot of Josh Allen's legs, capping it off with Josh Allen's legs running it in. Casey would get it to start the second half, and Mahomes would find Kelsey again for their second connection of the game. And on that score, Mahomes and Kelsey made history. That 16th touchdown connection put them one ahead of Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski, four ahead of Montana and Rice. So that's some pretty good names there. And then the Chiefs, uh, yeah, they had the lead again, but the Bills would march down and answer again. Allen threw a dart to Shakir. What a throw and catch. It was beautiful. It was the first touchdown given up by cornerback Legereus Sneed all season. So very impressive. And this game just continued back and forth. The Chiefs go right down the field. Pacheco touchdown run. Then the Chiefs would stop the Bills and force only the second punt of the game, except the Bills did the math. They had some extra blockers and thought, fuck it, let's do the fake punt. It did not work. They came up short. The Chiefs were in great field position. You're like, they're going to end it here. Pacheco went on a huge run, getting taken out at the three. Did not look good. But then out of nowhere, McCole Hardman hadn't done anything all game. They give him the ball, and he fumbled it just before touching the ground into the end zone, which is a touchback. People hate this rule. They say it's the stupidest rule. I don't I don't know. It's the biggest mindfuck rule in sports because you're so close to scoring and you end up giving the other team the ball. It just puts that much more emphasis on ball security. And, you know, the defense loves that rule, and they don't get a lot of good rules nowadays. So after that, uh, yeah, that crazy call, the Bills would get it, and they'd get stopped, but they'd get another chance, and uh, Allen would do a huge run, he'd fumble it, and it looked like Casey was going to scoop it up and score, but they couldn't get the scoop, and Buffalo recovered it, fourth and five, Allen would pick up the first down, and then it looked like Allen, they could have kept this drive going, it's Stephon Diggs wide open, but then he said, fuck it, I'm going end zone, and he got hit of it as he threw, came up a little short, so they're like, you know what, let's just kick the field goal, tie this thing up, Tyler Bass, normally clutch kicker, missed it wide right, reminiscent of Scott Norwood, who missed that infamous field goal kick in Super Bowl 25 against the Giants that could have won the Bills, their only Super Bowl. So, yeah, Casey would get the ball, Pacheco would run the clock out. Bills looked like they had this all game just to, like, it was back and forth, but you felt like they had a good chance here, and they just, to lose it the way they did to Kansas City again, they've owned them. They own the Bills in the playoffs. Like, 
Oh my god. Third time in four years the Bills lose to the Chiefs. Chiefs go to their sixth straight AFC championship game. Uh, it's rough, but you know, big drops. But Stephon Diggs had a big drop in this one. You know, aggressive throws instead of going for the first down, you went for the touchdown and ended up having the kick. All these led to the downfall. Is Diggs even going to want to play there next year? What is going to be with the Bills next year? It's a they look good, but they just fall apart when they play the Chiefs in the playoffs. I don't know. So this sets the stage for next Sunday: Kansas City and Baltimore, Detroit, San Francisco. Some great matchups should be really entertaining. My preseason prediction of Bills 49ers Super Bowl is now gone. Thank you, Buffalo. But looking at these conference title games, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to pick against Mahomes. I think the Ravens will win. On the NFC side, I'd like to see Detroit get in there, represent the NFC North for a team that has not won a lot. But I think the 49ers will win. I think we're going to have a 49ers-Ravens Super Bowl like we did a few years ago there in the Harbaugh, in the Harbaugh Bowl. But, uh, yeah, crazy NFL. Always at it again. Oh, Packers, how can you do that to me? But I am optimistic about the Packers here. So we had some fitty during, footy during the midweek, some third third uh, third round of the FA Cup, some replays there. Some pretty big teams going on. Wolves knocked out Brentford. Lutontown knocking out Bolton. The biggest upset of the frickin' week. The West Ham losing the championship side. Bristol City 1-0. So, yeah, that sucks. They're out of the tournament. The fourth round of the FA Cup begins on Thursday, and it'll kind of go on through the weekend into Monday. So there'll be no Premier League games on next weekend if you're like, hey, where are my Premier League games? There are some Carabao Cup games this week starting tomorrow. Chelsea and Middlesbrough play their second leg. Middlesbrough leading 1-0 one, one on aggregate. And Fulham hosts Liverpool. They're down 2-1 on aggregate. Some more midweek footy, the Copa del Rey. It's like the Spanish version of the FA Cup. Big matchups in there, too, in the round of 16. Sevilla knocked out Catafe. Athletic Bilbao knocked out Alaves. Mallorca eliminated second division side Tenerife. Celta Vigo beat up Valencia. Real Sociedad shut out Osasuna. And Girona beat Rayo Vallecano. Barcelona had a matchup with third division side Unionistas. They ended their Cinderella run, beating them 3-1. And then the game of the round, Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid. Yosalu would tie up the game at 2 for Real Madrid in the 82nd minute. We go to extra time. Antoine Griezmann, man, what a goal he'd score to put Atletico ahead. And Raquel Me would ice the game with the fourth goal. 4-2 win for Atletico knocking Real out of the tournament. Not a long wait for the quarterfinals. They start today, and they go on through Thursday. In your matchup, Celta Vigo, Real Sociedad, Mallorca and Girona. Athletic Bilbao versus Barcelona, and Atletico Madrid and Sevilla. So yeah, some really fun matchups there. Last episode, I felt like an idiot, didn't even mention the Africa Cup of Nations. One of the biggest tournaments going on, representing the best of Africa. Group plays almost come to an end, with each country having played two games. There are some groups that have some shocking leaders. In a group with Egypt and Ghana, you would not expect Cape Verde to be leading the group. And in a group with Nigeria and Ivory Coast, you would not expect Equatorial Guinea to be leading the group. And Algeria are favorites to win Group D, and they're finding themselves sitting behind Angola and Burkina Faso. There's been some exciting and some questionable footy being played at time, and there's some level of concern for Liverpool fans. Mo Salah had to leave the Egypt-Ghana match due to a muscle injury, and it's announced he won't play that last Egypt match. And if they advance, he won't be part of it. He's back in Liverpool uh, healing up and... Yeah, really tough for a team that's hoping to win the championship in the Premier League. So we'll see what happens there. 
the group fixtures, uh, they wrap up on Wednesday, and then the round of 60 knockout stages start up on the weekend. Now, after what I've seen in this tournament, I don't know how long Cape Verde can sustain their play, but it'd be exciting to see them go a little further. And I, but I do see Senegal winning this thing. But we'll see what it, uh, how it turns out. Some great football being displayed in the continent of Africa. There's some big news stories in footy this week as well. Roma, they sacked legendary, iconic coach Jose Mourinho after their recent loss to AC Milan. It didn't look like he was taking it too well. Uh, surprised many, and they replaced him with uh, Italian World Cup winner and Roma legend Daniel De Rossi. Then it's some transfer news. Jordan Henderson completed his transfer to Ajax. He was playing in Saudi Arabia with Club Al Etifak, but they mutually terminated his con- his contract. Uh, he completed his move to Saudi Arabia about six months ago after 12 years in Liverpool. He said it wasn't an easy decision, but it was best for him and his def- and his family. And uh, I imagine the lack of fanfare at the games maybe took some consideration, maybe the quality of play. But he's heading to an AX team that struggled a bit this season, and European footy's happy to see Jordan Henderson back. But, uh, you know, a lot of people called him a sellout for joining the Saudi League, and he deferred his payment a lot of it, so... Yeah, he, he got a double whammy. He was ridiculed for being a sellout and joining this league, but he never actually got the money, so ouch. <laughs> On the weekend, we had some good footy going down. Match day 21 was spread out because of those FA Cup replays midweek, but it started with a bang. Arsenal beating up Crystal Palace 5-0. Brentford and Nottingham Forest was really cool because you had uh, Ivan Tony making his return after eight months suspension associated with betting. After... Uh, Force went up not even three minutes in the match. Tony would take eight, 19 minutes to get back on the score sheet with a free kick. He'd curl it around the wall. And this was a back-and-forth game, but it would end with Mopai getting a winner. And uh, Brentford would win 3-2, their first win since December 2nd over Luton Town. So Tony could not have come back at a better time. Um, then you had the uh, West Ham <coughs> West Ham again. I don't know what's up with these guys. We went up 1-0 through Maxwell Cornet, Cornet and then uh, Chilean international Brenton Diaz, who was making his Premier League debut, would make a nice rebounded goal off Areola to equalize. Then later in the second half, West Ham, Danny Ings would get taken down the box. James Ward Prowse would step up, smash at home. And then Sheffield United would be looking to come back against West Ham, but they'd go down a man when substitute Ryan Brewster would get dismissed from the game. But then Vladimir Sufel would get two yellow cards in the span of four minutes for West Ham and get dismissed. And then to add more drama, moments after that, Sheffield United would get awarded a penalty. And then David Moyes would try some mind games, take out... Ariola, who gave up the penalty for substitute Lucas Fabianski, who has a really good penalty record, but it didn't matter. Ollie McBurney would step up, tie the game at two. Sheffield United, last in the Premier League, picking up points against West Ham. Bad week for West Ham, bowing out of the FA Cup and then losing or tying, which feels like a loss to Sheffield United, but we'll see what happens. Maybe they'll bounce back here. Bournemouth have been playing some really good footy lately, and they went scoreless in the halftime with Liverpool, but second half, Liverpool woke up. Darwin Nunez would get two goals. Diego Jota, two goals. They'd win 4-0 easily. Brighton still has to play Wolves yet. That game will be going on today, the 22nd, in this very spread-out match week. So at this point, we're not totally even on games, but the current leader of the Premier League is Liverpool. They have a five-point lead over Man City, who do have a game in hand. 
And then tied on points with Man City is Arsenal and Aston Villa. They're just a little lower because of goal difference. So pretty tight in the top of the Premier League. Uh, in Germany, there was a bit of a delay to the Bundesliga week start, weekend starting. The game between Mainz and Union Berlin was postponed due to weather. Just ice everywhere, and they deemed it unsafe for supporters to show up. Uh, Stuttgart continue their struggles in this new calendar year. A 50-minute goal by Bochum's Matis Barrow would prove to be the only goal and that uh, gave Bochum the win over Stuttgart, their second straight to start the calendar year. An early goal, followed by a fantastic second half, gave Dortmund a 4-0 win over Cologne. Freiburg and Hoffenheim, geez, what a game this was. Freiburg were up 2-0, and then Hoffenheim would answer, and they'd equalize, and then Freiburg would be given a red card late, or sorry, a second yellow, so they'd be the man down. That strangely inspired them as they'd go up for the third time of the game, going up 3-2, and Freiburg picked up the strange win. Leipzig and Leverkusen was probably one of the games of the weekend. Two clubs in the top four of the Bundesliga. Savvy Simons put Leipzig ahead up at the seven-minute mark, and they led in the halftime. But just minutes in the halftime, Leverkusen would equalize. And then Leipzig would find the lead again when Louis Openda would score a beauty. And that only lasted seven minutes when Jonathan Ta would equalize. And Leverkusen was constantly putting on pressure. Then in stoppage time, Hinchapi would score the winner. A wild scramble led to it, and Leverkusen's magical season continues. Unbeaten in 27 consecutive matches across all competitions this season. Hell of a season. Xabi Alonso, what a manager. He was a great player, and he's even a greater manager. You never would have thought. But watching Gladbach would go up early over Augsburg with a goal by Jordan Peefolk, the American. But then two unanswered second-half goals would give Augsburg the comeback victory. Real surprise with Bayern Munich and Werder Bremen. Uh, in the first half, Werder Bremen would have a goal disallowed. But they'd keep it up in the second half. And in the 59th minute, Mitchell Weiser would put some moves on Canadian national Alfonso Davies and blast a shot by Manuel Neuer, giving them the lead. And despite Bayern Munich's efforts, they could not equalize. Huge upset win for Werder Bremen as they go into Bayern Munich's house and beat them 1-0. Some other matches finished in draw, Darmstadt tying Eintracht Frankfurt and Heidenham drawing with uh, Wolfsburg. So after another postponement, that messes with the table a bit. It's still unsaid when Mainz and Union Berlin will make up their game, but during this upcoming week, Bayern Munich and Union Berlin will make up for their snowed out game earlier. So with all that said, Bayern Leverkusen still sit atop the Bundesliga, still unbeaten, as mentioned earlier. Behind them is Bayern Munich 7 back, but they have that makeup game this week. This week. Stuttgart and Leipzig are barely holding on the third and fourth spot following back-to-back losses. And Dortmund has been sneaking up. They're now equal with Leipzig in that fourth spot. In Spain, you had that uh, last weekend, that Spanish Cup wrapping up in Saudi Arabia. So you had all the teams involved this weekend. And it started off with Alaves picking up a big win over Cadiz. Las Palmas went on the road and shut out Rio Vallecano. Valencia won over Athletic Bilbao in a big 1-0 win. Real Sociedad went on the road and beat Celta Vigo by that same scoreline. Osasuna and Getafe played in a thrilling game. Osasuna had a 2-0 first-half lead. But two second-half goals in four minutes had the game tied at two. But it would take an 80th minute by Jesus Arezzo to give Osasuna the win. 
Villarreal's struggles continued. They had a first-half stoppage time goal by Sorlath to lead 1-0. Then keeper Pepe Reina would get dismissed with a red card, and Mallorca started to pick up momentum before getting the equalizer in stoppage time, preventing Villarreal from another win. <laughs> Real Madrid hosted bottom-of-the-table cl- bottom club Almeria, and they were down 2-0 at halftime. But this was a tale of two halves. Real Madrid suddenly turned it around and cranked up the pressure getting a penalty, which was converted by Jude Bellingham. They get a second goal by Vinicius Jr., and it looked like a handball. It looked pretty blatantly handball. It was called a handball. But VAR looked at it and somehow overturned it. I don't know if anybody else but Real Madrid's getting that call. I don't know. Almeria was not liking the way the game was getting officiated, and the manager was letting it be known. He quickly got two yellow cards and was thrown out of the match. And then minutes later, deep in the stoppage time, Real Madrid would complete this comeback. Crossing to the box, we get headed by Jude Bellingham right into the path of Danny Carvalho. We slid it into the net. You can see the emotion at the Bernabeu as the Real Madrid fans embrace that win. I mean, they didn't look particularly well, especially in that first half, but, you know, a win's a win, I guess. Barcelona, they were in a pretty wild one as well, real, visiting Real Betis, and Ferran Torres got a goal to have Barca leading at half, and you get a second just minutes into the second half. But then uh, things would go uh, Real Betis's way a bit. Former Real Madrid player Isco loved scoring against Barca, and he'd score two within three minutes, and the game was tied to two. And then the 90th minute, Yao Felix would uh, score to put Barcelona up top, and then Ferran Torres would complete his hat trick, giving them the 4-2 win. And the last game on Sunday was another doozy with Girona and Sevilla, Sevilla would go ahead when Vernal would score just 10 minutes in, but Girona would answer in a huge way. Three goals in six minutes, all by Artem Dovbeck. He went from zero goals to a hat-trick in six minutes, just like that. The third, a wonder strike from outside the box, and Girona took a 3-1 lead into the half. Two more second-half goals, and they'd win 5-1. The match week wraps up with Granada hosting Atletico Madrid today. And in La Liga, like I said, there are a few teams not on even games played, but for right now, Girona has a one-point lead over Real Madrid, who has a game in hand. Barcelona and the Athletic Bilbao behind them, and Atletico Madrid are three points behind Bilbao, but they have two games in hand, so lots of shuffling to go down in Spain. In uh, Italy, the weekend of Italian footy had some gaps in it. The Italian Super, Super Cup, much similar to what Spain did last week. They had theirs taking place in Saudi Arabia as well. A pair of semifinals with Napoli skunking Fiorentina 3-0, and Inter Milan shutting out Lazio with the same score. That trophy will be given out uh, today after that final between Napoli and Inter Milan is played. So pretty good finals you have uh, last week. They had the Spanish Super Cup this week, the Italian one. So people in Saudi Arabia are getting some good footy. A little higher than the level than what they see in their normal Saudi league fixtures. But uh, back to a Italian soil, and soil, I guess, where the domestic league fixtures took place. I mentioned Roma dismissing iconic manager Jose Mourinho during the week. And, uh, yeah, they seem to bounce back pretty good. Daniel De Rossi's club uh, used two first-half goals within six minutes of each other to hold on to the win. Great start for De Rossi's debut, or tenure in Roma. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, AC Milan would play on the road against Udinese, and they'd have to come back on two different occasions to tie the game before Noah Okafor scored the stoppage time winner to complete the comeback. Frozenone picked up a huge 3-1 win over Cagliari, the club's first win in, in the league since November 26. Uh, 
They beat Genoa back then. And speaking of Genoa, they'd overcome a goal just minutes into the game by Salar Natana to come back and win 2-1. Albert Goodmanson scored the winner via a penalty in the second half. Empoli only possessed the ball 28% of the match, and they still ended up beating Monza 3-0, with Siemens Zuzikowski scoring the natural hat-trick for Empoli in the win. And the last fixture of the weekend was Lecce and Juventus. Scoreless battle all game, then in the 59th minute, Juventus finally broke through. Vlahovic would score two goals in a nine-minute span, and Bremer would add a third in the 85th minute, giving Juventus a 3-0 win, with all their goals coming in the last 45 so with domestic play, Super Cup going on in Saudi Arabia, there's a few gaps with teams on uneven numbers, but at this point, Juventus has a one-point lead over Inter Milan, and Inter has a game in hand. Just behind them is AC Milan and Fiorentina, and that rounds out the top four. There were no league on games this weekend. They had a Coupe de France, round of 32 games. They're a French Cup. Some league on teams advancing were Lyon, Monaco, Brestois, Nice, PSG, Le Havre, and Lille. Some upsets, too. Uh, league on side, Reims lost the third division side, Sochaux, who's having a heck of a run. Nantes lost to League 2 side, Stade Laval. It would take penalties, but third division side, Ruin, would surprise top division side, Toulouse. So not good for Toulouse there to get surprised by a third division team. A few battles of league on teams. Strasbourg knocked out Clermont Foot, and runs took out Marseille in penalties. Ligue 1 returns uh, next weekend. We'll leave the footy pitch. We'll go to the hockey rink. Uh, there's some craziness in the NHL again. Having to start with the Edmonton Oilers. All they do is win, win, win. <laughs> the team we expect to see at the beginning of this season has shown up and then some. You know, 13-game winning streak. Longest ever by a Canadian franchise in NHL history. They're on the verge of making even more history. The current record 17 by the 92-93 Penguins. I know that's not the main goal of the Oilers season, but it's something, you know, it's within their sights now. Maybe they'll go for it. The rich got even richer. Former Chicago Blackhawk, who was removed by the team after an internal investigation, Corey Perry, signed with the Edmonton Oilers. So he's nearing the end of his career, but he's still a productive player. Hopefully he doesn't mess with their streak here, at least. Um, all this talk about the Oilers has us, like, kind of overshadowing two phenomenal seasons by Canadian teams. The Canucks lead the Western Conference with the Winnipeg Jets just behind them. Both are playing lights out. Colorado continues to play good hockey, and the Golden Knights have reeled off three straight wins. And after a nine-game winning streak, the Seattle Kraken have now lost four in a row. And the struggling Flames team, they're having a little more trouble. Calgary forward Dylan Dubé will taking an indefinite leave of absence from the team as he tries to attend with some mental health issues. Hopefully the 25-year-old figures it out. Going out east, the Bruins are rocking a four-game winning streak as they continue to lead the Eastern Conference. The Rangers have lost a couple cup ones this past week, as well as the Toronto Maple Leafs. But I mean, granted, the Leafs lost to two of the best teams in the West right now in Edmonton and Vancouver, so those were tough games. But the East is still very tight, and a run and a losing streak or a winning streak can really change up your standings here. The Panthers were hot for a while, but they've cooled off losing four straight. Though my Flyers turned a corner, but we just lost to the Senators, so it's tough go out there. Big news in New York is the Islanders relieved Lane Lambert of his coaching duties and replaced him with legend Patrick Waugh, and uh, he got a great start to his Islanders tenure as they beat the Dallas Stars in overtime. To stats, we have current new current points leader in the NHL, Colorado's Nathan McKinnon, 
one point lead over Tampa's Nikita Kucherov with 77 points. Austin Matthews leading the league in goals with 38. And on goaltenders, the best one in the right, best one in the league right now is in the province next to mine. Winnipeg's Connor Hellebuck is playing unreal. Aiden Hill still got slightly better numbers, but he hasn't played in a while, so I think he's going to be taking out of that right away. Hellebuck is the best save percentage, goals against right now. And, uh, yeah, despite missing some games, Connor Bedard's still leading in rookies and leading rookies in points and goals. Uh, he's still got a lead over Minnesota's pair, Brock Faber and Marco Rossi, who are tied up at 27. While Rossi is just two behind Bedard in goals now. Quick mention of the PWHL, Professional Women's Hockey League, has been off to a pretty good start. I've checked out some of it here. A few games into the season, the attendance has been pretty good, and the hockey's been entertaining. So far, Minnesota and Montreal have kind of looked like the two best teams. Some quick college basketball mention. The men's college basketball season has been crazy. seems any given night you can throw the rankings out the window. I've been hyping up how well Memphis has been playing. They ended up throwing away a game to unranked South Florida before dropping another close one to Tulane. Kansas had won two in a row and then lost to West Virginia on the weekend. Pitt beat Duke in ACC play. That just doesn't happen. It's wild out there. Purdue, North Carolina, Connecticut, they've all looked pretty good of late. As of Tennessee and Auburn in the SEC. But there are so many dangerous teams out there. I love this parody. The days of one or two teams being capable of winning the championship, those are gone. I see UConn staying at number one in the country, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Auburn fly up these rankings. And the women's side, I mentioned how wild the men's side was. The women's has been crazier. We do have some dominant teams, like South Carolina. They're continuing to remain undefeated and look number one team in the country. But you had some big matchups midweek in the ACC with some surprise results. The Hurricanes gave NC State just their second loss of the season. Duke beat a good Virginia Tech team, and Syracuse surprised Florida State. Pac-12 had some big matchups too during the week with UCLA outlasting Colorado, Utah surprising USC, and Stanford beat Oregon. Some history in that Stanford win too is Tara Vanderveer tied former Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski for most career wins at 12:02. Then you jump to Sunday and Stanford beat Oregon State, giving Vanderveer sole possession of the most college basketball wins in history male or female <clears throat> so that's really awesome congrats to her she was also the coach of the the dream team women's team in the 96 olympics great documentary on that um but yeah fascinating congrats to her again yukon texas and baylor look good on the weekend in their wins virginia tech and nc state avenged those midweek losses with wins over clemson and duke North Carolina stunned Louisville and more ACC play, but the biggest shock came in the Big Ten. Ohio State took Iowa down in overtime and shocked the Hawkeyes. Caitlin Clark scored 45 points and had seven assists, but also had seven turnovers. Huge upset win for Ohio State. Cody McMahon led the way with 33 points and 12 boards, and then a kind of a scary scene after the game. With Ohio State winning at home, you know there was going to be a court storming, and the fans ran on, and fan collided with Caitlin Clark, knocking her to the ground. She looked a little shaken, but she was okay. It could have been a lot worse. I'm surprised more people aren't hurt on those, to be honest, those court stormings. But I also did mention this last week. The first Grand Slam is going on down under. The Australian Open's been in full swing, and we're approaching the quarterfinals. On the women's side, you have it all set up. Noskova will be taking on Yastremeska. Kalinska will be facing Zhang. 
Kostiuk will be taking on American Coco Golf, and Krajokova will be taking on Sabalenka. On the men's side, Novak Djokovic takes on American Taylor Fritz. Yannick Sinner takes on Andre Rublev. Hubert Herkas takes on Daniil Medvedev, and Alexander Zverev takes on Spanish phenom Carlos Alcaraz. We'll see who comes out on top by the next episode coming out. I'm thinking Coco Golf should take this one. I'm hoping, and I'm thinking Djokovic will win. He he seems to always do that, but we'll see what happens. Maybe there'll be another epic matchup between him and Carlos Alvarez. UFC returned to Toronto for UFC 297. Tons of submissions to start the night, but we'd see more decisions on the main card. Except for Neil Magny, who pummeled Mike Mallett until the ref called that one with just seconds to go until that went to decision. Raquel Pennington beat Mara Bueno Silva to win the UFC Bantamweight Championship. Then in the main card, that also went the distance. I could have gone either way. Dresis Duplessis won by decision, beating Strickland. Duplessis, I always get his name wrong. DDP, we'll call him that. Capturing the middleweight championship. First South African to win a UFC championship. Congrats to him, and congrats to Toronto. Looked like a successful event. Don't usually talk golf, but hey, you know, it's cold outside. Let's get warm. Talk about golf in California. And there was some history made. University of Alabama sophomore Nick Dunlap became the first amateur to win a PGA Tour event since 91. But same year the Lions made that MC conference game. But he was he won the American Express Open in California. And since he's an amateur, he did not collect the $1.5 million purse for the event. And it went to second place. So good time to come in second when you're winning that kind of money. <laughs> But yeah, that was the crazy week in sports, and I was like trying to find the connection for this episode short, and it came in a different way. My mom, you know, she got her house looked at for an appraisal. Holla, if you need anybody that needs to move out to Mormon, I'll pass it on. But it brought me back to memory lane when I actually moved into the 1,000-square-foot shop that my parents had in the backyard. And I was in high school, want some independence, as most teenagers do. We didn't use the shop for much other than, you know, we'd play hockey in there once in a while. But it was mostly for storage. So I took it upon myself to go on a little project, move all the storage to the corner, try to stack it up so it's there. And I convinced my parents to move in there. It was a heated garage, and they said, yeah. So I was like, yeah, it was dope as fuck. Me and my friends made uh, different rooms by hanging sheets from the ceiling to separate. We spray-painted shit on the sheets to resemble some kind of art. And, you know, it was just cool shit for teenagers to be doing. We, I had surround sound on my, and my 64 out there. Crank that shit up, play Goldeneye on the 64. Nothing like that. Da-da-da-da. It full blast, you know. It was awesome. There even a few times we'd open the overhead door and blast golf balls into the neighborhood and shut it after we hit something. We'd write our names in flammable liquid and set it on fire and then air it out because we're like, I think we're going to die otherwise. But uh, it was also the first time I ever tried pot, you know. We And the first time I had it was with the blades, you know. The guys had some weed and they're like, well, do you have any knives? I'm like, hey, here's a box of cutlery. Not realizing it was like my parents' wedding knives. But anyway, I took two out, tried blades first time. It was pretty fucked up. They say sometimes you don't get high your first time. I was. And, uh, you know, I put the blades outside in the snow to have them cool, kind of forgot about it. And the next day, my dad confronts me, and he's like, I saw the knives, where's the hooter? I wasn't familiar with pot terms or anything. I'm like, I don't know what a hooter is, like an owl? I didn't see anything. I was very confused, but, you know, I got in shit. Probably shouldn't have been doing that. And, I mean, if you are, don't use your parents' wedding knives, I guess. But didn't stop me from toking. It's kind of what I do now. I don't drink anymore, so... (laughs) 
But uh, it was a cool experience, you know, living out there, pissing in the alley when you needed, except, you know, it got lazier and lazier. You can see the piss journeys. That's the thing, you couldn't hide that in the winter. It's like, it's kind of gross. But uh, the energy bills got really out of control, you know. It was heating a fucking full shop for me to live out there. It gets a little pricey, but it was super dope to let them try me, let me try that for a trial period. And I don't want to say it gave me independence. It probably, you know, made me a little worse. And then I had to <laughs> learn from that. But, yeah, it was awesome, and I loved it. So we'll see. Hopefully the house gets a little quick. Like I said, if you need anything, need a house out there, holla. But hey, episode 46 in the books. We're chugging along. If you didn't hear any NBA news, that's because I usually have so much. I started my own weekly NBA recaps. They're on my page. Check them out every Friday. Used to be Thursdays, but I don't work Fridays. And it just works out easier, yo. But hey, I hope you had a, had a good time. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you got to enjoy the weekend. And the rest of the great sports I